Hi, my name is Corey Washington. And I'm Steve Shu, and this is our show, Manifold. And Steve, um, we just had a great conversation with a fabulous young woman named Noor Siddiqui, who you first met a few months ago. Uh, tell us about that. So Noor is the founder of an event at Stanford called No Filter. And it's an event where the students invite uh, interesting people um, to give them unfiltered conversations and discussions about uh, all kinds of topics. Um, Noor is extremely interesting. She was a Teal Fellow. Teal Fellows are people who are funded by Peter Teal to start a company right out of high school, which she did, but now she's uh, at Stanford University. And um, we had an excellent conversation with her. She's very special in a number of ways. We, we wanted, I think in our first, very first discussion, episode zero, we talk about how old and out of touch we are. And, uh, As if it's not obvious. Yeah. <laughs> and so, of course, we, we'd like to get some millennial or Gen Z kind of people in to give, the, give us a feel for what life is like uh, for that generation. And so we kind of killed two birds with one stone with Noor because she's sort of, she's Gen Y, um, I'm sorry, Gen Z uh, millennial, but she's also in the heart of Silicon Valley. She's now an experienced startup entrepreneur. And so she can talk about both those topics, which are things that you and I are both interested in. And I think we learned a lot about what Stanford's like today. You know, I was there at Stanford. I think I left Stanford around 1992, which is just before, uh, essentially, the uh, the uh, internet blew up and Stanford became the center of uh, startup universe, at least the uh, Silicon Valley did. Um, but she had some really interesting perspectives on how college differed from the time when we were there. Now, we recorded uh, over the internet because uh, with Corey, I think Corey was in the office and I was at home. And this was because we had this polar vortex event in the Midwest where it was incredibly cold. And they actually shut down the university for several days, which is very unusual for Michigan State University. Um, so the audio quality might not be up to uh, what we aspire to get uh, in these shows, but I think it's still listenable. Um, and um, unless you have more to say, let's just uh, go into the interview. Corey, we're live now with Noor Siddiqui. She's an undergraduate at Stanford University. One of those super talented kids that when you meet them, you sort of feel like they're gonna do something really interesting in life. So first, could you tell us a little bit about your background, uh, how you ended up um, going to Stanford, what the college application process was like? We hear so much about how stressful it is compared to when we were kids. Um, yes, I think I probably have a little bit of a weirder story. So uh, when I was graduating from high school, I, uh, you know, found out about the Teal Fellowship and sort of, you know, dropped all my ambitions for college and sort of thought that, okay, if I can learn how to, you know, start a company and sort of, quote unquote, change the world, that's really, you know, what I wanted to accomplish in college anyways. So I should go do that. Um, so yeah, I basically, um, you know, decided to do the Teal Fellowship right out of high school. Um, started a company and then um, there was basically this decision point where okay you can either go try and you know, sell this company or you can you know go to college and I think where I was is that um, I felt really proud that I had sort of you know built this product built this team uh, went from sort of nothing to something but at the same time what I was working on isn't what I wanted my life's work to be it was sort of like we had built this physician collaboration tool that uh, you know was helping doctors and it was live in patient care, but um, you know it wasn't necessarily like the thing I wanted to be my life's work. And I thought that okay, you know you learn some really valuable things here, but if you think really long term, it probably makes more sense for uh, for you to go to school and you know study computer science and genetics, like the things that you've always been really excited about, and uh, to try and do something uh, a little bit bigger than sort of like just a digital health app, which is kind of you know the thing that I had been working on before. So that's sort of the point where I went to Stanford. So I actually am sort of like three years um, removed from, you know, most of the cohort. Um, but of course, at Stanford, you actually do have a lot of people like me where they sort of did something else. They took a gap year or they also did a company and either decided to sell it or not sell it and then come to school or, you know, they were in the military or, um, yeah, a lot of people have sort of like interesting stories. They went to the Olympics or whatever and then decided to come to college after that. Great. You know, I, I had totally forgotten that you were a Teal Fellow. So, um, Corey, <laughs> looks like you. I want to hop in for a little bit and roll back a little bit. I, I, you know, I, I want to know, can I ask the most basic questions about a couple of things? Um, 
can you just tell me where you're from? Because you sound like you have a really interesting outlook, and I'm kind of curious. Where did you go to high school, and what were your interests there, and how did you find about out the Teal Fellows? And for, I think, a lot of people, a basic question is, what are the Teal Fellows? So can we sure, roll sure, back sure. a little bit? Sure, right. yes. Yeah. So I grew up in I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., so in um, Fairfax County, Virginia. And uh, pretty much everyone who ends up at Stanford goes to Thomas Jefferson, which is sort of like the science and tech magnet school. But I actually went to uh, Robinson Secondary, which is sort of like a um, like IB school. And I was really excited about sort of going to school internationally at the time. So I chose to uh, go to Robinson. Um, so yeah, that's where I grew up. And then what was your second question? How did I find out about the Teal Fellowship? And what are the Teal Fellows? I think many people don't quite know. Steve and I know about it. We want to make sure everyone is in on the conversation. Oh, sure, sure. So yeah, I found out about the Teal Fellowship actually um, kind of just online. There was just sort of uh, little snippets of uh, stories here and there that I saw. And just kind of the first story that I found, I was just, you know, got really excited about it. Um, what are the Teal Fellows? So the Teal Fellows are um, a program that was started by Peter Teal in 2011. And the idea was um, let's give young people grants so that they can go pursue uh, whatever ambitious dream they have. And um, as a condition of uh, this grant, you, you know, forego uh, university for, you know, at least two years while you, uh, you know, try and make whatever your vision is uh, come to life. And I, as I recall, Peter Thiel started this with a slightly subversive agenda, right? And Peel, Peter really had some doubts about the value of a college education relative to value getting real world experience. I mean, Steve, you know Peter uh, pretty well. It wasn't the idea somehow that he thought that this was actually a more valuable experience often than four years of college? So I, I think Peter, Peter and many people in his orbit, uh, including a little bit myself, think that we're in the midst of potentially a higher ed bubble in a certain sense. And so yes, he had a slightly subversive view of this. The place where I agree with him is for some super talented people, this might make sense. I think for the average kid, it doesn't make that much sense. But but I would love to hear what Noor has to say about it. Yeah, I mean, in, in my opinion, I think that um, his agenda has been sensationalized a little bit. I think there's really a lot of um, value to what he's saying, which is that um, there are alternative paths to success, and it doesn't have to uh, be predicated on a degree, whether it's from a a uh, very fancy institution like Stanford or Harvard, or whether it's just from you know, uh, you know, any other university. And I think that um, there's really, I think for someone coming out of high school, that that option is not really presented. But at least, at least, especially I think in 2011, 2012, when you know this first started, the idea of not going to college, I think, was a lot crazier than it is now. I think even now, if you look at the fellowship applicants that are coming in. A lot of them have been um, you know, working on their startup for several years. They've already gotten funding. They already have traction. They're basically much farther along, I think, in part because of um, you know, seeing the previous class of fellows, sort of what they accomplished. Um, so I think, especially in 2012, there wasn't seen as any other avenue to be successful or like to make anything of yourself besides uh, going to college. And I think that even since then, there's been a little bit of a change where um, you know, you see more people kind of like going after apprenticeships or going after, um, you know, an idea they have and trying to like build a business just right out of high school. And that wasn't as much of a thing just a few years earlier. It's interesting. My, uh, my cousin's kid, I guess that's my first cousin once removed. Um, she, uh, she similarly, she left high school, didn't go to college, started up a catering business in Atlanta and just uh, grossed, crossed the 1 million mark for grossing last year. And uh, her take on it is, um, yeah, if you're kind of a self-learner and a self-starter, then that's the kind of person who could also succeed without college. And I think, um, he's, I think she's pretty much planning to hold on to that path. Nor, when you uh, applied for the Teal Fellowship, had you already been admitted to Stanford, or did you have to reapply later? Yeah, so Stanford basically let me defer for um, several years. They were very kind, but basically by... By the time that I actually uh, joined Stanford, they, <laughs> I think they, they, were, they were unwilling to let me defer anymore, but you know, they let me defer for uh, you know, the time between high school and the fellowship. So you did go through the standard college application process. You, did, you weren't sure that you were going to be a Teal Fellow, and so you, you applied to Stanford through the regular process? 
Well, I mean, all the applications are sort of due at the same time. It's, it's, it's been a little bit of a while <laughs> since all that happened. But yeah, I basically, I think the college applications are due in December or something. And I think that I was applying to the fellowship and, and university all at the same time. So if you're if you're a parent like me of teenagers, my kids just turned 13 not so long ago, um, you know, you get the impression that the really serious families are sort of planning already, like what their kids are going to do to pad out their applications to get into a place like Stanford. Is, is that consistent with your experience? I mean, is it taken that seriously these days? Uh, I think it depends where you grow up. Um, but yeah, I think I think that the process of getting into college is um, probably more stressful than it needs to be. I think there's probably way more posturing than there needs to be. And I think that that's also, I think, where Peter has a good point where, you know, you shouldn't be spending, you know, 18 years, of your, you know, until your adult life sort of like padding a resume and not really pursuing your real interests. And I think that the irony of the whole thing is that I think, um, at least in my experience, the people who actually get in, they didn't spend, spend most of their time padding their resume and working on things artificially. They sort of spent their time going really deep on things that they were, that they sincerely cared about. And I think when you sincerely care about something, um, maybe more comes of it, but, you know, maybe if you have a, you know, tiger parent, uh, they can really drive you as well. I don't, I don't know, because I, I fall very much into the former category. My parents were actually like quite um, hands off. They were never really like pushing me, you know, either to like get good grades or to do extracurriculars or anything like that. So I feel, I guess, fortunate in that way. Um, but at the same time, I actually sort of envy the tiger parents. I think it's kind of cool. Like, um, my, my cousins actually, they have, their parents are, I, I think, sort of more tigery. They sort of like take them to, you know, Japanese classes and like go to Japan and do Japanese immersion and things like that. While my parents were like very unwilling to sort of like let me go anywhere during the summer. They wanted me to sort of like spend as much time with them and with family as possible. Yeah, I'd say I'm kind of borderline tigery tiger aware of what what these people are up to and my feeling is that you know the admissions people would love to see a kid who is truly passionate and if there's something on their resume that you know really stands out it's something the kid really was passionate about and wasn't manufactured by some adults you know uh, dragging them to Japanese class or something like that but the, the problem for them is that they can't really tell the difference it's very tough for them to know whether it was true passion which is what they're trying to detect or something meant to simulate that in the application. Yeah, I think it's very clear sort of once they're in college, which it was, because I think the people who were driven by their parents, they sort of relax and aren't really very motivated anymore or are still sort of motivated by kind of impressing their parents or, you know, impressing some outside party. But I think that the students that are internally driven, they're, you know, kind of an overdrive. They're sort of in the place where they had always wanted to be, the place where they have sort of like the most access to the opportunities that they had sort of been wanting for a very long time and the freedom as well to pursue them. So I think, I think it becomes very clear once they're admitted, but I, but yeah, I agree. I think that as someone who's in admissions, it's probably really hard to differentiate between the person that was very um, well coached and the person that, um, you know, has, has, you know, more sincere drive. Well, one of the things I argue with my wife about is the musical instrument stuff, because I was forced to learn to play the piano when I was a kid and kind of hated it and have no musical talent, but, you know, did pretty well in piano competitions for some weird reason. But um, I remember like at, uh, at the time when I was at Harvard or something, there were tons of Asian American kids who had done like 12 years of violin and piano and won all these competitions, but then they never touched the instrument again. And um, I, I feel like that was just the perfect example of that kind of uh, maybe overblown, overgrown tiger parenting. Yeah. No, yeah. I've, I've definitely met a lot of people like that who sort of, they, they won these like math competitions or uh, science competitions. I forget the names of them, but they're very prestigious and um, they sort of never touch the subject to get after it because they're sort of tired of it. But, but I also wonder whether even if you decide not to touch it again, the instrument or the math or the, you know, science, biology facts, whatever it is, I wonder whether that discipline still sort of stays with you. To me, it seems like it might be valuable. Oh, I, I was going to say, to me, it seems like it might be valuable anyways, but that's again because I sort of, you know, looking back, I have this like weird, you know, desire to, you know, have had that, like slightly more of that experience than I, that I actually did. 
so I, the, 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 the extent to which I supported the forcing kids to learn to play a musical instrument was because I thought early on, maybe there's actually something about their brain development that's actually assisted by learning to play the instrument or learning to coordinate their hands. But then after a certain point, it seemed to be that it would, you know, at this point, it's just grinding. And if they don't like it, mm-hmm. then don't make them do it. And so that's sort of where I dropped out of the tiger parent mode. Uh, but but I, I still am... Uh, my wife is still angry at me for not supporting her more on this one. <laughs> you know, there's actually research that kind of uh, supports these views about uh, encouraging things. There's some studies on creativity which show that if you uh, basically take a kid and uh, pay them, uh, you, you have to set up a competition, right, where kids are asked to make a drawing or to build something out of uh, construction materials, and you pay the one who produces the best drawing. Uh, judged by some particular uh, method or experts. Um, uh, those kids basically, if you give the option of playing with those materials again, they won't touch them in the next hour or so. But if kids are allowed to more or less free play with them uh, as they like, and then maybe you select the best ones, those kids will often continue to play with those things for hours on end. But putting kids in competitive setting and really encouraging them to do something uh, seems to discourage later activity, uh, at least over the short term in these studies. So. It may be true in longer terms also. I'm kind of extreme. I'm forcing my kid to learn like four different languages and she's three. And, uh, you know, so far she's going along with it. Um, I'm in the opposite position. My wife is sort of less enthusiastic about this than I am. But the kid seems okay with it so far. I'm expecting a backlash at some point in time in the future. I want to get four or five languages under the hood before uh, she stops willing to play along. Let me go back to you, Noor, and let me ask you, um, when you look back at your startup experience as a Teal Fellow, do you ever think back to that time and say, wow, how naive I was, you know, it's crazy to think I could have done, you know, started a company when I was 18 or something like this, Um, or do you have the view that, no, it was perfectly reasonable and actually could have succeeded? Oh, (laughs) Oh, sorry, I guess I make it sound like it was worse than uh, it was. So, um... Yeah, I definitely look back at myself and say and think that I was very naive back then. But I think that hopefully at any checkpoint five years later, I will always think that about myself five years ago because I, you know, I think slope is more important than why intercept it matters. You know, how much you're growing every year, not you know where you start. So I think that hopefully I'll always think about that, think that way about my five year ago self. But um, no, I think it's totally reasonable to be uh, successful at, at that age or, or really at any age. I think. It's more an internal decision than an external decision about when you're going to take yourself seriously and when you're going to take your own ideas seriously. Um, I actually consider, you know, the experience, I mean, 100% of success. I, um, you know, I learned how to build a product, learned how to build a team, learned how to raise money. I mean, you know, not very many startups get to actually make money. And, uh, you know, we were able to get to that point. And, um, you know, there was, uh, you know, there was interest in people who wanted to buy the company. I mean, uh, I think, the only reason why it wasn't sort of wrapped up in the traditional, uh, you know, quote, like success um, package was because, you know, we, you know, we chose not to go through with the acquisition because I wanted to, you know, go to university instead of, uh, you know, get it acquired. But um, I think, again, that, that, that badge is not closed to me in any sense. I feel like, you know, after I graduate, if I want to go do it again, there's, you know, uh, I don't think any of the investors or you know people that I know would think you know, oh you couldn't you were not allowed to go back to school after you know you made the commitment to start the company. I think that um, everyone has their own circumstances and uh, you know makes makes decisions that make sense for them. And I think for me, uh, I wanted to think a little bit more long term than okay this like very immediate exit from you know something that I worked on for two years. So Noor, sorry to interrupt, but can you tell me what the app did? For sure, yeah. So um, what we did is we connected primary care doctors with specialists. So basically, you go into a primary care doctor's office instead of waiting five or six weeks to see a dermatologist or cardiologist or orthopedic surgeon. Um, It just allowed you to consult uh, right away with um, that specialist in a one-office visit. So basically, the the benefit there is that instead of you know going to the orthopedic surgeon and uh, him or her telling you that oh, you actually only need physical therapy, I can't operate on you, you sort of get that consult uh, much earlier so that you can be directed to the right next steps, whether that's physical therapy or the right imaging or the right medication. Um, it all happens in one visit instead of spread out over several visits. 
Are, are you by any chance familiar with a company in the UK called Babylon Health? Mm, I'm actually not. So, you know, your idea is so great that it's actually something very similar to it. It is succeeding like crazy in the UK right now. Um, there's a company called Babylon Health that has an app-driven general practitioner uh, access. Um, and it's actually part, they, they, they kind of went through a loophole. And so they are part of the national healthcare system. And so anyone in the London area can select them as their GP, general practitioner. And the contact with the physician happens over the phone, video app. There's a triage process where you kind of inform a chat bot about your symptoms or what your problems are. And it actually does some initial triage um, using AI. And I think 500,000 people have signed up for this service already, and including the health minister of the UK. So um, it seems to me like a really obvious use of the technology that, you know, makes, makes the, you know, the waiting times smaller. And, you know, you, I think in many cases, just talking to your physician over a chat app, video chat app is just as good as what you get, you know, after sitting in a waiting room for an hour. Yeah, so I mean, the main difference from, from from just like typical telemedicine, you know, you're at home seeing a doctor to what we were doing is that we actually had the primary care doctor there with you. So basically, they're assessing you in person. And then if they need a specialist or, you know, some specific concern you have, instead of having to go to that specialist visit, you know, alone without the proper context or the right, you know, you know imaging or whatever steps beforehand, um, you kind of got that with the doctor there with you. But I mean, I think that the problem in the U.S. is not... Um, a lack of technology or a lack of options. I think it's much more a lack of incentives. Um, the reason why you don't see technology like this adopted across um, healthcare has much more to do with you know, payment schemes, right? I mean, Kaiser has um, has you know products like this because uh, they're bearing risk, right? They're uh, they're responsible for the cost of the patient. But if you're not bearing risk, which is happening in most settings in healthcare today, there's there's not really an incentive for you to try and make things more efficient and to save people time. And I think that in the UK, you do have, you know, again, uh, you know, sort of like more of a single pair system going on. So there's more of an incentive to try and reduce costs. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, uh, US, the US is going to be slower, I think, in implementing a lot of important innovations just because aligning the payers with, um, you know, the incentives from the payers to the actual people who deliver the medicine is it's just uh, messed up right now. And maybe will be messed up for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's really sad because there's so many uh, there's so many people here who are building really exciting things, and now when people ask me about, oh, should I start this healthcare company or that healthcare company? Like the first question I ask them is like, okay, well, who's paying you? Are you sure they they will pay you? Because um, I think there's like an assumption, basically, you know, every other industry where, okay, if I provide value to this person, they're they're going to be willing to pay me. But the problem in healthcare is like you can provide value to the doctor to the patient, but they're not the one who's actually paying you, right? You have to convince insurer or you have to convince, you know, a self-insured company or you have to convince, you know, some other party that's like very bureaucratic or has very different incentives than, you know, trying to solve, you know, a specific actor, specific problem. So I think that just makes things really complicated. And I think that a lot of startups uh, don't realize that until very late. And that's sort of why you see a lot of these direct consumer companies like, you know, Doctor on Demand, for example, who sort of pivot from, you know, direct to consumer to, um, selling to self-insured companies because they, they just realize that there's not a willingness to pay uh, from the consumer because, you know, they're getting their their health insurance from where they work or from the government or, you know, they're not paying out of pocket for it. Yeah, I, I agree with your characterization of our, our system completely. I, I mean, I think some of the single payer systems, you know, ironically, because you normally wouldn't think, you would think that we have unfettered capitalism, but in fact, a lot of these innovations are going to get rolled out faster in the single-payer systems than here. Yeah, I know. A lot of these is also very not intuitive. It sort of reminds me of, like, you know, Econ 101. It's like, just within that first class, you sort of see, okay, wow, very small, you know, changes to incentive structures cause, like, crazy downstream effects. And I think that that's what you're seeing in healthcare. I mean, I, I think one of the stats I was really shocked by is that um, if you go to sort of, like, a any any doctor's office and you ask you know what percentage of the bill is is uh, absorbed by bill by like the actual process of billing it's 30 percent like 30 percent of what they make is actually it, it costs them 30 percent to just do the billing process it's, so it's white, like on every hundred white collar yeah, on every hundred yeah yeah and every hundred dollars they make 30 dollars is being spent just like capturing the billing right just like Sending in the forms, dealing with insurance, it's like getting the reimbursement. I mean, that's just totally, it's a huge waste of money. It's a waste of yeah, a lot of people's time. 
Yeah, you talk to any doctors and they'll complain about that right off the bat, right? The amount of paperwork they have to do to basically justify their billing is just enormous and a huge waste of their time. It's, um, there's definitely some efficiencies that can be gained there in healthcare. If someone figures out a way to alleviate that burden. But here we're, here yeah, we're, really, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just going to say that, I mean, most people thought that this move to, you know, electronic health records was, you know, a move forward, digitizing health, all that. But I think fewer people realize that the move to Epic was really about billing. It was about, Epic is really a billing system. It's not, it's not something that helps, um, you know, keep better track of patients. Yeah, you know, the inefficiency of our billing system, it's, it's apparent to anybody who's been through a complicated medical situation in the U.S. But in talking about these incentive issues and the rollout of new technology, you're really talking about innovation that is super important for moving things forward into the future. And there, you know, the specific stuff that I'm working on now, which is, you know, uh, prediction of risk uh, uh, from uh, genotype, um, you know, we're at the point now where we have these predictors, which are well validated, they work well, you can pick out the 1% of the population that most that's most at risk for, you know, heart attack or something. Um, but what we're seeing is that the single payer systems, uh, like in Finland or the UK are probably gonna roll all of this stuff out much faster than America. It's just it's just the craziest situation. Yeah, I mean, even with projects that I've worked on at Stanford, so for example, um, in Sebastian Thrones lab, we worked on a skin classifier. Um, so I specifically worked on something for inflammatory diseases, so like rosacea, psoriasis, eczema, and a bunch of STDs. So basically the way that it works is you just input an image and then, uh, you know, we just have this, um, you know, CNN that's able to, so a uh, convolutional neural network that's able to uh, classify that skin lesion at the level of a board certified dermatologist. And we had conversations with, um, you know, the FDA here and there's sort of like this very long out process to try and um, you get this approved for use here, and uh, in Singapore, uh, it's a much shorter process. There's a lot more interest in sort of just deploying it, gathering data, and um, yeah, just using it to help give more people diagnosis sooner for their skin issues. So again, it's like something that um, could save a lot of money, could save a lot of people time, and because of you know just issues and you know how how incentives work in the U.S. and how regulation works in the U.S. is actually going to be uh, deployed outside the U.S. first. So uh, let, me, let me go back to um, your college experience. So, um, you know, I guess I did my first startup much later in life than you, but one of the things I said afterwards um, was that, uh, you know, even if we hadn't made out well financially, you know, it would have been a fantastic educational experience. And I felt like I had earned the equivalent of, you know, like, 10x times an MBA because I had done all these things. I actually supervised MBAs and, and negotiated contracts or raised money or fired people, hired people, all those things. Um, so I'm curious for you now, um, I guess you're probably what you're on the lookout for getting from your undergraduate experience is quite different because you've already done that. You've already actually founded a company and run it. Yeah, I mean, I think that for me, what I was trying to get out of college was... Um was much more like, I guess, research experience. I thought that, um, yeah, having the time to research in the way that you are in, you know, the AI lab at Stanford is very different than what you're allowed to do in industry. Um, so that, that's kind of what I focus on. I focus more on um, research things and I guess like just sort of like math and CS classes that I thought, okay, this is really interesting and fun to know and a good way to sort of like, uh, push-ups for your brain I guess kind of thing um, but yeah I, I wasn't really as interested in sort of like the startup classes that they have at Stanford because yeah I mean I think that that's the kind of thing that you um, you can get a good primer for like sort of what to expect and kind of what the, um, the inflection point should be but again I think that it's something that you much more have to live through and sort of like really put your heart into than something that you can get only like 20 hours or 10 hours a week so a few years ago, someone told me that every year about a thousand students at Stanford, including graduate students, though, uh, take the machine learning classes um, or class. Um, is that still the case or was that kind of a, a fad that persisted for a few years and dropped off? No, I think that the AI classes are still really hot right now. I mean, I don't know if it's at a thousand people, but I would say it's probably closing in on that number. I mean, they're extremely well taught. I think they're... Um, 
for me, actually, the way that I've been choosing classes has a lot to do with just how well taught material is or like how entertaining the professor is. So, um, yeah, I think that those classes are, are, are very well done. I mean, you can just, I mean, you can go to like cs231n.stanford.edu and sort of see the class notes. And I think that um, if you compare that to sort of just like a typical textbook, I think that um, you sort of you can get up to speed a lot faster. Just they have like great illustrations and like great explanations. Um, so yeah, I think that they're they're well done and they sort of deserve the attendance that uh, they're getting. So I, I I feel like at Stanford there must be uh, just an incredible diversity in life goals or life aims among the students. So probably there's some fraction of kids who are aiming at an ivory tower academic career, maybe even in the humanities. There's some people that are trying to be billionaires by the time they're 30 and everything in between. Um, do you guys get that impression? Do you, do you talk about those kinds of things? Um, so I think one, one sort of maybe unfortunate factor is that I think that I've probably been um, sort of too embedded in the sort of like CS or EE community than sort of being well-rounded and knowing everyone. So I think that unfortunately I haven't really gotten to um, talk too deeply with people outside of uh, CS, but I think that that's definitely true. There are people with you know like very different ambitions, and I think that most people certainly do not come in here do not come here with the ambition to you know do a, do a startup or to do a company. I think most people, I mean, that, that's something that you sort of get once you come here. Is you, you realize that that's that's sort of a common path if you're in the Bay Area, but um, it's definitely not. I think ambition that uh, the majority or even a large fraction of people come in with. Interesting. So uh, if, if I heard you properly, you said most of the kids when they enter Stanford are not thinking that they would start or be part of a startup, um, but they might get exposed to it. And so that, that number would go up after spending time in the Bay Area. That's my impression. But again, I mean, I, I'm just one person. I haven't sort of surveyed everyone and you know, know exactly what they're thinking in their, in their, in their hearts. Um, but that's, yeah, that's sort of the impression that I got. I think that, you know, if you're deciding whether to go to, you know, an East Coast school or a West Coast school, I think that maybe you would be more likely to choose a West Coast school if that was something that you wanted to be exposed to. So maybe, it's, you know, the population is going to be enriched for people who want to do that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not sure. Nor, had you considered other schools um, or did you decide at Stanford pretty much right off the bat and go early decision? Uh, no, I was I wasn't early decision to Stanford, but I think... Um, yeah, after the fellowship, I definitely realized that I wanted to stay in the Bay Area and I, you know, really loved a lot of the people that I met and the network that I made and I didn't want to kind of be on the East Coast or abroad or someplace far away. I wanted to, I knew I would be really engrossed in school when I was in school, but I still, you know, have been able to um, go to a lot of things or, you know, startup or healthcare or, you know, that are confined to sort of the Bay Area. And yeah, Stanford was the only place I was going to be able to, to do that as well. Is that the only place you applied to? Um, no, I applied, I applied to a few other places, but decided not to pursue the deferral of the other places. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't think you're even allowed to defer to more than one place anyway. So, so I, I think when we first met, Noor, um, I was, it was in the, the Gates, the Computer Science Building, um, and I think I overheard you and a professor who was your advisor, or you work in his lab, saying something like, describing a meeting that had just recently happened with some venture capitalists or something, maybe at a cafe, but maybe I just uh, am inventing that part of it. But um, I was struck by thinking to myself, well, how many places, you know, is an undergraduate? Now, at that time, I guess I had forgotten that you were uh, formerly a Teal Fellow, but, but at the time I was struck by saying, like, how many undergraduates are casually discussing with their professor uh, some meeting with a venture capitalist, you know, about presumably about a startup or something, a specific funding plan? Um, and, but is, is that a common thing at Stanford or is it only in sort of your narrow circle of friends? Again, I think it's hard to know uh, what's common or not common because you sort of only you know, live your experience. But um, I think something I've definitely been really struck by at Stanford or especially in the Bay Area is um, sort of how collaborative the environment was. I mean, I never felt that I wasn't taken seriously even as a 17 year old coming out here and starting a company. And um, that's like very different, I think, than the way that you feel, or at least I felt in high school, where I sort of constantly had to convince, you know, my principal or my teachers to just let me do the things that I wanted to do. Versus, uh, as soon as I came out here, even you know, before I had you know the Stanford degree, I think that um, people in the Bay Area are just kind of evaluate you based on you know your ideas and 
um, you know, what you've executed on and not really so much on, um, you know, how old you are or what you've done before. And I think that, yeah, there's also definitely that, um, that vibe, I guess, at Stanford where, you know, if you want to talk to a professor about an idea that you have, um, and, you know, you think it has the potential to become a company, I think that they're surprisingly willing to entertain it and sort of mind, mind melt with you and sort of think about, okay, what are the ways that, you know, we can make this happen or um, you could, you could make this, uh, you know, you could develop this further and, or test it out in some way. Yeah, you know, I would say that in the Bay Area and then also globally in certain places where the startup ecosystem merely has taken hold, um, there is a lot more variability in what people will accept. So some sort of middle-aged venture capitalists would be happy to talk to some really talented young person because they, they actually have experience with that type of person, you know, really succeeding or creating value. Uh, but it is very unusual in the rest of the world. So, you know, if you're on the Michigan State University campus and you're 18 years old, you can't expect anybody, you know, my age to treat you as anything other than, you know, like a freshman or something. So um, I do think that is very special and very different. Yeah, I, I just feel like I've, I've learned so much being treated as a peer um, by people who are very much not my peers. Um, I mean, I, I definitely recognize this, you know, I'm the same level as, you know, these professors and these people who have decades of experience, but the fact that they treat me that way definitely does, uh, I, I at least hope, you know, on occasion, you know, I rise to their expectations and, you know, uh, am actually able to, um, you know, present something at the same level that, you know, they would, if they, if they, uh, if they had thought of, you know, the similar, similar idea or, you know, had, had a similar um, ambition in mind. I think to turn it around, though, I mean, if you were a professor at some other university and you were routinely approached by 18-year-old kids with super high confidence but actually weren't able to actually back it up with some capabilities, then you would rapidly stop treating the modal 18-year-old that approaches you with that kind of level of respect, right? So, so there's a sort of combination of things. There has to actually be a pool of talented people who are confident enough and can actually do things that are useful um, in order to create that balance in the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I would also say it's bi-directional, though. I mean, I, I feel like I met a lot of students here who have way less confidence than they should. They're actually much smarter than people decades older than them, but they're, um, they're actually still too caught up in the deference that they were raised in, where they don't want to, um, you know, take an idea that they have uh, more seriously or take their capabilities more seriously. So uh, it's actually funny. I think that the people who are, who are more confident are actually... I would say on average a little bit less competent than the ones who are um, you know, sort of like more shy and more reserved and like more willing to sort of like jump through the hoop. I actually think very often those people are um, more competent, but they just don't want, they're just not as willing to you know, put themselves out there or to, uh, you know, I guess risk, risk being wrong about something, which, you know, everyone inevitably is. You know, I, I agree with you. I, I have as a kind of, algorithm running in my head that the quiet guy on the team or the quiet gal, you want to just listen very carefully and give them a little extra space to express what they're thinking, because often they are the most insightful ones, but they just don't happen to be the most extroverted or confident ones. Oh, really, I mean, you're, you're a professor. So I mean, you've, you've been exposed to, you know, um, you know, thousands of students in your classrooms and yeah, you probably have like a larger end to sort of see, you know, is that, is that, generally what you see in the wild or is that maybe just a thing you know at this one school that I've, I've been at yeah confidence and capability are, i think mildly positively correlated but certainly nowhere near correlation one so so you can have people <laughs> who are crazily overconfident and you know people who are really quiet but they can really do stuff um i was just going to say this other thing where you you mentioned that you know you and your friends probably have noticed that uh you know if like you and Professor X are approaching some topic, de novo topic, you guys might pick it up faster than he or, or her. Um, in the same way, like when I talk to really big figures like, oh, university president or billionaire, you know, famous billionaire that you might know of, um, oftentimes they're not necessarily superhuman at all. They're just as confused about the same stuff as other people. And, and you, you really just need to treat them as you would anybody else. Um, there isn't any like, um, you know, 100% perfect indicator of superhuman ability. Yeah, I think the, the one thing that always surprises me is whenever I talk to someone who's, uh, you know, a, a super expert in one field, and you kind of go a couple degrees to the right or left, um, it, it's just very shocking to me how shallow, you know, the understanding can be. And that's sort of humbling in some sense, because even if you are an expert in one thing, you should always 
like remain curious and uh, remain like willing to learn because you know your expertise can only go so far. Um, but yeah, I think that that's always something shocking because I think that you assume that if someone's really competent in one area, they must be competent in all areas. But that's I've never been the case. I've always seen that people who are experts in one domain are you know just as you know novices as the rest of us in every other domain besides the one that they're an expert in. Yeah, I think that's the right um, conclusion to take from that, that, you know, uh, ex um, expertise is not necessarily always transferable. And, and oftentimes, you know, for someone to succeed to the point where they are the world-class expert on some, say, area of molecular biology or something, they really had to focus on that. And so their knowledge about, uh, you know, the Patriots quarterback, um, you know, is no better or is actually much worse than uh, the average person. So um, I think, I think you're... Um, your, your conclusions based on that experience are correct. Yeah, but that's also something I've been really impressed with at Stanford is that um, someone will be, you know, world-class expert in some area, and then they'll teach this class as if it was for two kindergartners, right? You know, like, they're explaining, you know, how Fourier transforms work in this, like, third-grade way, and I just absolutely love it. I just think that, you know, if you're an expert in something, then you're able to explain something at a, um, you know, kindergarten level. And it's so clear how well they understand the concept when, they're explaining it in just like completely intuitive terms before putting out any of the math. Um, so that's something that uh, I don't think I'm, I'm nearly as good uh, as I want to be at, but that's something that I think is probably one of the, the main takeaways I've gotten from Stanford is that if you're really technical at something, then you should be able to explain it in completely non-technical terms and um, they should still feel like they understand whatever the concept is. Yeah, you know, I, I often say this to graduates students, which is that, you know, when someone has a really, really deep knowledge of a particular thing, let's say Fourier transforms, that means they can explain it in a very, very simple way. And they, you know, those kinds of explanations or those kinds of uh, models or, or comic book, uh, you know, renderings of what's really going on in there are really priceless gems. And I always tell the grad students, if some visitor is coming to give a talk on X and you know that they're a deep expert on X, you can go and talk to them and they can, they, they, they might not necessarily be able to do it, but very often they'll be able to explain it to you in a way which is, you know, basically priceless. You're not going to get it from anybody else. And so it's worth trying to dig that out of them when they come and visit. I mean, I think the sign of a really great classic paper is often just seeing how simple and beautiful descriptions of the phenomenon are. You know, the, the obvious example of this are Einstein's papers, you know, the early parts of them often have no formulas and they're just driven by these gorgeous thought experiments. And Feynman was much the same way as you know, Steve, right? His ability to kind of communicate ideas using very, very simple analogies. Um, I think it's really a sign, if, some, if someone can't explain something in a very simple, intuitive way, I have deep doubts as to whether they actually understand it. Yeah, and actually, I, I would say that in my own research, I always, well, at a after a certain point, once I figured this out, I would challenge myself that if I was asked to give a talk on this material, that I could explain it, fine, I could boil it down to a very simple explanation, which at the beginning of the talk, maybe the first 15, 20 minutes, that everybody in the audience, even if they weren't an expert, could really understand that first 15, 20 minutes, and then have some, you know, intuitive understanding of what I was doing. Um, I would say, though, that... You know, going to a Feynman lecture is a little bit like eating uh, what people used to say about eating a Chinese meal. Like it's very satisfying, but then like half an hour later, you're hungry again. And what happens with Feynman is he's such a, he's such a good showman and he's so charismatic. And the way he talks is so simple that during the talk, you feel like you understand it. But then as you're walking back to your dorm room with, your other, with the other students and you try to explain to each other what he said, you realize actually, oh, uh, actually, I don't really, I don't really get it the way Feynman did because now I can't generalize from the analogies that he gave me. I can't. I, I can easily generalize in a way that in which I make a mistake, which he, he wouldn't necessarily do. But uh, so it is a little bit tricky. It's not. Uh, it's not always that simple. Oh yeah, I, I totally agree. It's it's it's, what, it's just like watching like a gymnast, right? It's like or a dancer, right? It's like wow, that looks so easy. It's like it only looks so easy because it took you know a decade of preparation, and I think that. Um, it's weird, this phenomenon you know, reappears over and over, right? You see it in performers, you see it in professors, in the way they present material, and you actually also see it in startups in the way that they present companies. If a founder is super clear about the problem they're solving, they're able to explain it to you, uh, you know, in two sentences. And so many people never get to that point because they're always in that, you know, that foggy intermediary where they're still rehearsing, they're still refining, they're still practicing, they're still trying to understand, um, you know, what exactly should their business be doing, what problem should they be solving. Um, yeah, so it's very weird. It's very weird how um, whenever you've gained mastery over anything, it, it ends up being this uh, 
very effortless and concise uh, summary. It's a very, very consistent endpoint for many different fields, weirdly. I even find that, you know, if you're the founder and you have a very, very specific and well-formulated uh, explanation of what the company's trying to do and what the problem is and what the market is, that even on your team, if you go one or two layers away from the founders, people on the team can't really articulate properly exactly what problem they're trying to solve or what the company should be trying to do. Or if you meet the, even the investors, like the VCs, you meet them a year or two after they've invested in the company, maybe at a board meeting, and they're also a little bit fuzzy about exactly what the issues are. And so it's, 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 it's much harder to diffuse that information out uh, than you think. Let me, let me go back to one of the questions I wanted to ask you. This is a little bit now, maybe because it sounds like you're very focused on the sort of engineering, computer science, genomics part of things, but um, this is a kind of a broader question about the atmosphere on campus. So um, do you think that free speech is in any way restricted on campus these days? Are there, are there serious ideas that can't get a proper discussion on campus? Yeah, well, now we're getting into the controversial questions. That's good. Um, I don't know. I think that uh, I've never encountered that issue. I, I always feel free to, um, you know, speak my mind and you know, tell my honest opinion about things. But I think that, you know, perhaps if you're, you know, not a minority woman, maybe you don't feel like you can do that because you're somehow infringing on someone else's uh, rights. And I'm not sure, honestly. Um, but I, I haven't felt that way. I haven't felt like any idea that I present can't be taken and, you know, debated and discussed. Um, but yeah, I would, I would feel bad if other people felt that way, obviously. Are there things where, you know, as you're asking the question or raising the topic in a discussion, you're thinking to yourself, wow, I, I am a minority woman, so I can say this, but if I were a white guy, I wouldn't be able to actually bring this up in conversation without taking a big risk. I mean, that's not something that I think about personally, but um, I imagine maybe if you were a white male, then you, you would be maybe treading on, uh, treading more carefully. But yeah, again, I, you know, I only inhabit this one body, so I can't really, you know, I can't, I can't really know what someone else is thinking. I think it also, also, you know, often comes down to personality. I think just like me as a person, I'm, I don't, uh, I'm not really concerned with, with confrontation. Confrontation is something that bothers me, and I think that um, someone else, if you're less willing to engage in debate, then obviously you'd shy away from a lot of topics, um, regardless of the climate. So, yeah, I think that there's, there's always this dual responsibility of the individual and of the community to support that. So, I think that any individual, any single individual with, you know, commensurate strength can sort of break any community, even, you know, if you talk about something as a uh, you know, oppressive as like a, a dictatorship, right? You you ha you see these individuals who overcome even that level of uh, you know of muffling and silencing, right? And then we also see the opposite case where it doesn't matter how open the community is, how accepting the community is, if you have an individual that's very very unwilling to you know you know voice their opinion, then yeah, again you don't you don't see people expressing ideas openly. So yeah, there's there's always I think a joint responsibility between the individual and the environment that you're in and. I think as an, as an individual, you can only control yourself. So, you know, <laughs> my, my choice is always to, you know, feel as free as I, I want to be and not really let the environment bother me. So if, if I were to channel my inner Peter Thiel, or um, was it the Stanford Review that he worked for? Is that the, is that the conservative newspaper on campus? Um, yeah, yeah, that's correct. He, he founded the Stanford Review. Yeah, okay, so if I were to channel my inner Stanford Review or Peter Thiel, I would say something like, um, well, things have gotten so politically correct on campus these days that, are, that there are quite a few, you know, intellectually defensible, serious questions that deserve, you know, um, rigorous debate, but you basically can't have those discussions because people on the left will shut you down right away. And I think Michigan State doesn't have this quite so much because we're kind of a land-grant blue-collar, down-to-earth kind of university, but I wonder if you feel that that's true at Stanford at all. I mean, I don't think that's true, but I mean, I think it also depends sort of like where you swing on the political spectrum. If you feel like no one supports the opinions that you have and no one wants to come to a talk that you present, then I can see how you'd feel that way. I mean, I think there has been attempts to sort of, um, you know, have discussions about, uh, you know, 
various topics that are unpopular. And I think that they have been, they're, you know, they're circulated and people know about them, but the attendance is just very low because it's just, it's just not, I guess, a defensible uh, opinion in a lot of people's eyes. So, I mean, they're, they're happening on campus, on campus and, um, you know, a certain subset of students are attending them, but I think that, I think it would be correct to say that they're unpopular and um, yeah, not very well attended, I guess. Okay. Now, when Corey and I were in college, which was um, before you were born, um, uh, it was the 80s and Ronald Reagan was president. And, um, you know, when we thought of college 20 or 30 years before when we went to school, we were thinking of the 50s or 60s. And we could, we could point to millions of ways in which the college experience for somebody in the 50s or 60s was totally different from what we were experiencing in the 80s. And I'm curious what mm -hmm. you would say about your current college experience. How do you view it as different from what some old guy like me experienced? I think it's kind of what we touched on earlier, which is that um, I think that there's a lot more of a collaborative and collegial, collegial relationship between students and faculty than I would imagine I would have on the East Coast or um, maybe, you know, 30 years ago. I think that um, to me, that has been probably the most valuable and unique part of my Stanford experience is the fact that I have gotten to become so close with professors who um, have done such interesting work, work both scientifically and professionally and, you know, getting to learn and work with them on, on equal footing. I think that's definitely really unique. I think that obviously, um, you know, CS is really different now than it was 30 years ago, right? I mean, AI has been a, been a huge, um, you know, revolution and people are really interested and excited about the promises that holds. Um, but I think just more broadly, I mean, uh, computers have just gotten like much cheaper, much faster, much more ubiquitous. So I think that um, there's like the possibilities for what kind of business that you can build or just what kind of um, things you can do just for the computer and, you know, not with, uh, you know, significant funding or anyone else. It's just a lot more than it was uh, you know, just a decade or two ago. I think that's probably really different. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's just had a huge impact on like how people organize, what people do with their time. I mean, just like, I don't know, I, I was watching the episode of Seinfeld the other day and I just thought how funny it was that the whole plot was driven by the fact that Jerry couldn't go tell this girl that, you know, he wasn't going to meet her at a movie or something, right? And that, that, that whole plot doesn't even make sense today because you just have mobile phones and everyone can just text each other all the time about, you know, changing plans. And this whole episode was about, you know, how his you know, whole day had to be turned around in order to, you know, call a friend to go, you know, meet this person at this, at this you know, movie theater and tell her, okay, he can't make it or he's going to be an hour late or whatever it was. So I think just so many things like that as well are really different than they were just a little while ago. Yeah, on that last point, I'm told people don't really have to make plans because they're always just in sync with everybody else. So, you know, we had to plan things well in advance, like we're going to meet at this point and we're going to do this. But now you can just mill around and say, hey, we're all just going to do this now. And it just happens. And so that, that's quite different, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think it has its pros and cons, right? I mean, the pros that maybe you can be more spontaneous, but the con is that, you know, once you, go, once you go to one event, people are like very willing to sort of go to another thing because they can find out about it immediately. You can just call a ride immediately to go get there. So there's, there's definitely like maybe too much FOMO, too much fear of missing out. And uh, that kind of... <laughs> makes people be a little bit less happy with you know, what they're doing right now or who they're with right now. I, I just learned the acronym FOMO from my daughter. So I didn't actually know what it meant until <laughs> today. What does it mean? Uh, I, I don't know. Fear of missing out. I think there's a lot more FOMO when there are so many options available to you. What do you feel like would define your college experience? Like, what, what do you think about it? Well, you know, you I imagine it's really different today than it was when you went to college. You know, one of the things which is particularly germane to you is that there was very little action that you could take outside the curriculum or narrow career path. So in our era, you know, you if you wanted to do a PhD, then you better do well as an undergraduate in the classes so you can go to a good graduate program and get your PhD so you can become a scientist. Or you have to get into the right law school to become a lawyer, or you have to go to the medical school to go become an MD. Whereas now people can say, oh, yeah, I'm going to start a company. I'm going to do this. I'm going to write some code by myself that you know, millions of people are going to use. 
nothing like that was really possible for anybody. Maybe the closest thing would be you wrote a really great short story and got it published in The New Yorker. But I, I think the set of people that were trying to do something like that was like basically zero. So almost all of us were stuck in a very rigid kind of marching pattern that you could do better or worse than somebody else in that marching pattern. And you could jump ahead. Like Corey and I, I think, graduated from college when we were quite young compared to our peers. But, but you, 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 the lane you were in was very structured. Whereas now it seems like for the very talented kids, there, there's a lot, just a lot more options that they could pursue. And some of those options have little to do with actually what's being taught in the courses. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, a lot of that is still the same. I mean, if you want to become a doctor, it's still the very rigid path. If you want to become a lawyer, it's still the very rigid path. And I think that there's obviously a lot of um, change that could happen in medical school that would make things a lot better. I mean, we have a shortage of doctors that's completely artificial by the fact that, you know, medical schools and residency programs only want to train and admit a certain number of people, regardless of the fact that the, we actually need more doctors. So the, the process I mean, of becoming a doctor hasn't changed that much, but the fact that there are so many options other than being a doctor, lawyer, or, you know, scientist, that, that I think is the thing that's different now because of the startup economy and the idea that you can be a, a kind of independent coder, um, you know, that, I think that's the part of it that's different. Well, are we really exaggerating the, the, I mean, Steve, I think maybe exaggerating the number of career paths opened up. It seems like tech has opened up a set of career paths. People are self-starters, extremely good coders. Um, but I'm not sure how much, it, the question I asked you are how, outside of the tech area, how much do you think things have probably changed since Steve and I were in school, where we did have this very traditional career path? Um, tech is new, but are there really other radically new paths that someone can take, uh, either before college or after college? I mean, I think, I think you're getting at it with, you know, your um, niece that you meant to be started this catering business. I think that, you know, the idea that maybe you can just go start the business that you want to start without getting a college degree. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, whether it's, you know, start a restaurant, whether it's start a catering business, whether it's, you know, any, any other number of businesses that, you know, maybe you weren't, you wouldn't get any further along, you know, if you study, you know, an unrelated topic. Um, I think that's becoming more of a thing, but obviously, you know, being in the area, being here, most of what, what I'm seeing is, you know, what people in tech are doing. Yeah, I actually don't know whether people starting doing more startups now than there were. I think there are actually fewer small businesses started recently than there were in the past, actually. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure uh, what the overall trends are in this area. That, that could be the post-2008 downturn, because I think a lot of people have been strapped since 2008. So um, there may be more startups being started, but fewer small businesses in total. Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think a huge part of that is, is student loans. I mean, you know, if, if, if someone has, has, you know, significant debt that they have to pay off, I mean, that's obviously going to change their risk profile and, and, and desire and willingness to a company. I mean, that happens to people who are in med school. It happens to people in law school. Maybe their heart isn't in it anymore, but they realize, you know, through the process that it's not to them, but they no longer have a choice. They sort of have to pay back the loans that they signed on to. You know, that that's that's a huge difference that I should have mentioned, is that in our generation, nobody really ever talked about student debt. You might have a little student debt that you're kind of paying off, but it was never a really super, correct me if I'm wrong about this, Corey, but it was never a super onerous thing. Whereas now I get the impression that, you know, if you graduate from college with a hundred thousand or two or $300,000 in student debt, you're, it's, it's a crushing burden that we never had to experience. Yeah. I yeah. think that basically the cost of healthcare and the cost of education in the U S I think there's something like, there's a, there's an image on my Twitter that I should uh, send you, but basically it looks at the cost of you know, goods by category, you know, over the last 50 years or so. And then basically the, the enormous outliers are healthcare and education in the U.S. Um, basically, the, the quality is constant, but the cost is exponential. And we have to do something about it, but, you know, nothing, nothing really has happened yet. Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, as Peter would say in describing the higher ed bubble, he would say, well, what happened is the opportunity for the mechanism for debt financing opened up. And so the universities took advantage of that. They could raise the prices. Um, and people would still pay them. And hence the whole enterprise became less efficient. And so, but, but people haven't yet been able to overcome their social conditioning that they must get a bachelor's degree. And so uh, hence you get this bubble. Well, the data is strong in showing how the benefits of getting college education. So people aren't deluded about this, right? 
compare the uh, average lifetime income of somebody with a high school degree, some with a college degree. Well, but the causality is not clear, right? Because in the, in the past where you get all the data from, there was pretty strong ability selection for people who could graduate from college, whereas we don't have that now. Um, if you look at typical freshman class at like a big 10 university 30, 40 years ago, a lot of people would flunk out. That you, could, you would go to college, but then you wouldn't make it. You weren't college material and you wouldn't graduate. And the schools didn't uh, feel defensive about having a low graduation rate of 30 or 40% or something like that. Whereas now we're very defensive about having a graduation rate of 60 or 70%. So um, the, the signaling, I mean, the, the fact that college graduates in the past did well economically doesn't necessarily mean that modal kid going to college now is going to get uh, their money's worth from their tuition and their future earnings. Yeah, I mean, I think that it, the, a huge part of it is, you know, what major did you choose? I mean, uh, I, I don't think that college should be this sort of like vocational education type thing where, you know, you're only studying something to get a job. But I mean, if, you're, if you want to recoup the cost of your investment, I mean, that has to be part of it. So, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like I, I don't have, you know, too many friends who are, who are outside of tech, but the ones that I have seen, I mean, it's really difficult for them to get a job and they sort of have to sort of like completely rethink you know, what it is that they wanted to do. And, you know, it's not an enviable position. And I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure why they weren't counseled earlier, you know, as freshmen or, you know, um, even when they were entering school, you know, like this is what the outcome will be four years from now if you pursue the path that you're, that you intend to pursue. I, I think that I think that's, that's, that's irresponsible, honestly, on the part of the uh, university or parents, I, think there's, I guess. I think there's been dis- deliberate obfuscation uh, by professors in certain fields of the fact that the modal graduate in, or average graduate in that major doesn't make a lot of money. They don't want that information out there. And so they haven't tried very hard to collect the statistics and get the information out there. But I think universities as a whole have a responsibility to make sure the kid knows that uh, future lifetime earnings are somewhat strongly dependent on choice of major. <laughs> and that information should be available, uh, but it's not even today. Well, that data is quite public now. You can find easy websites to show you kind of modal uh, income for different kind of majors. It's not like this is hidden. You know, I think Glassdoor yeah, has, I think, no, a bunch right. of- but it's a relatively recent thing. And I don't think the universities are supporting it that much. That's right. Is there anything mm-hmm, you think sure. in our generation really you'd like us to know about your generation? Like, is, mm-hmm. Does that help the question all? Is there something like, you know, I, I sure. can say things I thought, I wish my parents really understood about my generation. I, I think they didn't quite grasp. Is there things that are similar? Sure. I mean, I think there's some things that, that I, as I'm thinking about my relation to my parents, like the things that they don't understand. I think that, um, <laughs> the problem is I'm not sure how much of it is you know, just me personally or, you know, my peer group also feels strongly the same way. I think that um, me personally, I really value um, like traveling and new experiences. And um, yeah, and I think that for my parents, they see that as wandering, as being lost, as um, you, just, you just generally not being good use of time. And I think them specifically as immigrants, they sort of, you know, they came from Pakistan and, you know, it was a very arduous process to, you know, you know obtain citizenship here. And, you know, obviously I, I respect that that was a huge gift that they gave us. And I had a, you know, you know, great life, you know, growing up in, in America versus what I would have had growing up in Pakistan. But at the same time, that doesn't diminish my desire to, you know, see the world and to like, you know, experience other cultures and how other people live. And um, yeah, I think to them, they just, they don't understand that. They think that, okay, America is the best country. Um, you're so lucky that you got to be here. Why would you ever go anywhere else? So <laughs> I'm not sure if that's anything that you sort of, you know, rings the bell uh, with you guys. But um, that's something that I, that I think is really important is like knowing how other people in the world live and um, just like seeing what their day-to-day is versus you know, what my day-to-day is here. Well, I don't, I don't sense a huge generation gap, Corey. What do you think? You know, just, I think we, we talked about this a little bit, but I think in some ways, and maybe this is my own kind of self-centered view of growing up in a pretty liberal town, I think a lot of the mm-hmm. values are viewed as kind of typically liberal and kind of maybe free to be you and me 30, 40 years ago are now completely mainstream, right? So the mm-hmm. attitude from Amherst, Massachusetts was, of course you want to go see the world. You know, of course you want mm-hmm. to get a different perspective. And this wasn't very common, but I think 
you see, and Steve, you and I have talked about the fact that some ideas kind of start small and kind of grow very, very widely. So I think I think mm -hmm. some of these more broad-minded ideas um, that I think you and I may benefit by happenstance of growing up in are now extremely common. So it's natural that in fact there's not been much generation gap between you and I and Noor. Because we're actually yeah. we're pretty much the same culture, you know, you and I and she Yeah, actually that, that that is actually what I would say as well. I think that I often hear this rhetoric around, oh, like millennial, Gen Z, or they're so different than everyone else. I think that um, the reality is is that, you know, we're all, you know, pretty similar. I think that um, just go talk to just go talk to someone who's you know fifty years older or younger than you, and I think you'll find that you'll, you'll get along more than you think. At least at least that was my experience, you know, coming as a seventeen year old and talking to people, you know, thirty, forty years my senior. Um, I was just really impressed with how how um, how much they're willing to get at my level and to, to talk to you know to, to tell me literally that the baby steps of starting a company when they've done it you know a thousand times and funded us you know a thousand companies and they were just you know willing to. Um, explain things to me in that way so I don't know I would I would actually say that that we're, we're really not that different and if anything you know we got our values from you guys so <laughs> we're we're what you we're what you wanted the world to be like hopefully we're, I mean, we're moving slightly in the direction that you expected I think it's interesting is that there's actually quite a lot of difference to Noor probably now and us when we were in college right I mean her experience would look incredibly foreign to us 30 years ago right the idea of taking a gap year off just I mean, I heard people did it. It seemed incredibly eccentric. Like, why would you do that? You know, you're wasting your time. Like, so us okay. back then who were very career driven, I think her idea of kind of focusing on tech, maybe taking her off, that to me at her age would just seem like, like on another planet. Does it now, right? But certainly something none of us would have thought of at that time. Now, if you have this consciousness of this whole idea that there are these things called startups and there's a certain level, there's a certain experience and knowledge you need to execute a startup. Uh, and one of the best ways to learn that is to actually, if someone's going to pay you like Peter Thiel to go off and try to do one, we could conceptualize it that way, I think, but we wouldn't have even had the idea of startups back then. There was not, you know, that was right. Just Bill Gates had just dropped out of Harvard a few years ago to start Microsoft. But the whole idea of, a little tech company doing something amazing in the world was not part of our uh, conceptual vocabulary at that time. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, my parents said very much the same thing when I was uh, deciding to do it. They just felt like, you know, this is a crazy experiment that I don't want you to be a part of. <laughs> so I don't <laughs> think that it, it's uh, different than the way that you guys saw it. But I, but looking back, I, I don't think I made a better decision in my life. I think it totally changed my trajectory. It totally, um, it just exposed me to a lot to a world of uh, ideas and people that are, um, yeah, still definitely influencing me today and are some of my closest friends today. That's great. Well, as I said, we're kind of over time, so I, I think we're going to call it. Uh, Nora, we really want to thank you for spending this time with us. We, uh, you're obviously a very thank exceptional. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and it was it was really a lot of fun. So hopefully, we can have you back on the show at some point. Yeah. Wow, that's so kind of you to extend another invitation. Yeah, it was great talking to you. I'm so glad, you know, we, we got the chance to meet. I mean, in some part, you know, our, our meeting had to do with Stanford as too, right? Right? I don't know if you would have, you would have joined me at a different school. Yeah, well, and, and uh, next time I'm out there, we'll have, to, we'll have to meet up again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again so much for having me. I really appreciate getting a chance to chat with you. All right, okay. have a good one, guys. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye.